you are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. Bridget Quinn, author, is in the Grotto Pod. And if Woody Allen were in the Grotto Pod, we could probably fit him right in the corner. We were just talking about Woody Allen. Very I feel like when small, you say author, you say it a little sarcastic. Wide whale cord wearing man. He used to wear like a little bucket hat when I used to see that, him on the street in New York. Not an affectation. Well, if you do it before anyone else does, then it's not an affectation. Right? Oh, I don't think it was an affectation. It looked insane. He probably at just the had time. a sunburned scalp because he wouldn't admit he was going bald. Yeah, I think maybe he's just very pale and was protecting his head pale. from the sun. What type of Jew is that? Pale. He is. He's We're an olive skinned people. No. Uh, yes, we are. Jews we are embrace an multitudes. People. That's not true. Oh, please. All right. Whatever. I'm not getting into it. Don't get into semantics with me about Jews. <laughs> I will take you down. If only I knew someone who knew a lot about Jews. I know. Who, who could perhaps we get? hosted a podcast about Jews. Okay. Hmm. This is not the way we should be starting. This, this. is not germane. Our guest today. Rachel Howard. It's Rachel Howard, all the way down from Nevada City, California. One of your favorite places. Uh, adjacent to one of my favorite okay. places. Author of the new novel. The Risk of Us. The Risk of Us, which comes out. April. April. So I picked that book up and did not put it down until I was done. Yeah, two days. Yeah, two and days. I just I like read plowed, it right through. I plowed through it a lot. I don't know, plowing I, through that book seems. I don't know, but you know, like it right was, because uh, maybe we should talk about this because. Uh, you know, you have all these narrative devices that you hold, at, or I do, like when I'm creating things, like, okay, I have to have this conflict, and then I have to have, you know, sure. complications, I gotta save the cat, all that stuff. Um, and I, she, I'm not, I want to know how she did it with this book, because I, I got to a certain point, and I was like, I'm totally in, I'm, it's a page turner for me, but I mm-hmm. don't know why. Right, and, and I, I agree. As a writer, I don't know why. As I have been reading the Save the Cat book that you so yeah. kindly got me, I'm really thinking a lot about not only the idea of that structure, but also the idea that in the beginning of that book, the author says, I don't care what novel, movie you're talking about. It is this structure. And it might be there, but right. I'm not. I, it's it's very masterfully done. It's expertly disguised. Yeah. 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 Uh, so Rachel is also the author of the memoir, The Last the Lost Night? The Lost Night. The Lost yep. Night. Ooh, heavy. Yeah, very heavy about the murder of her father. While she was in the next room. Yeah, I mean, it's age 10. super intense. That is very intense. Uh, she has been interviewed for that book on This American Life. Did you listen to the interview? I didn't, no. I would like to inter- I would I'd like, like to, to hear I'd it. like to hear about it, yeah. too. Ira Glass. Yeah. People uh, And that book like came out, Glass. do you have the date of that? But uh, it was, it a, while was a while ago. And that's another thing I want to talk to her about because Rachel is very active writer, um, editor, critic, dance critic especially, um, writes for publications all over the country. And she started this amazing reading series in, is it called Grass Valley? Do you call that area Grass Valley? Uh, no, you call that area just the Sierra Foothills. In the Sierra Foothills. She, called- she is called Yuba Lit, and yep. it's amazing. Founder of Yuba Lit and the Yuba Writers uh, Workshops. Right. So she teaches she's up done there. all this stuff. She's kind of the alpha writer in I would think. Although Grass there are Valley, some Nevada amazing, City. amazing writers up there. Sans Hall is up there, too. He's a really good writer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's inspirational. I was just up there last weekend. Oh, yeah. And did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it a lot. But I guess what I want to say is I want to hear the story of how The Risk of Us came about because she has all these things going on. I know she'd been working on another novel for a while before that, and this one just seem to like come on gangbusters and I want to hear the story. Yeah, yeah, I want to hear about the lost novel too. Um, oh, I don't know if it's lost. I don't well, know okay, yeah. maybe shelved novel. Or just, you know, I think sometimes it can happen, don't you think, where you're like, there's all this energy in 
with an idea and you just need to Absolutely. Or, I mean, I I found myself in the position where I was working on something for a long time and it kind of, it hit a dead end just in time for something else to pop up. Yeah, I mean, it could be like that too. So, And it's shelved. It's not dead. It's just sitting there shelved. Yeah, exactly. On the virtual shelf. It could always come back. I should make a folder. My desktop is called Shelf. I will say it is one of my most cherished beliefs that nothing is ever wasted. Mm. And I do find that I use pieces of things where I'm like, oh, that is the perfect thing. Like that piece pilots that I had in narrative or Mm -hmm. have a narrative right now. I worked on that for years and suddenly realized the thing that would make it work was this other essay I had tried to write for years called phrases of my father that Mm. I could never create a narrative engine for. And I just plugged it all in and it was like, bam, it was the, it was the special sauce that made it go. Hmm. Okay. So uh, it can be like that, too. You don't have to go back to the same novel, but maybe it will turn into something else. Yeah, well, and, and Rachel seems like kind of a, a real, um, uh, how would I put it? Not an academic writer, but a real product of, of an MFA program, and, is, and it teaches in that world, and yeah. goes to the workshops, does the whole bit, writes the serious fiction. She's living it. She's living it. I mean, Husband's she, an artist. You know, the whole know, 100% cool. art life. I know. I love that. In yeah. fact, you know what? She is here this weekend, in or this week, I guess, in San Francisco because she was here for the, uh, I think, the opening of the ballet or the ballet gala or something. Right. Because she writes about dance. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. ask her who she thinks is going to the Super Bowl. Kidding. I'm not going to ask her that. No. I was giving you the stink eye. I know. Also, Hard to tell when you're wearing glasses. I know, who cares? I don't really care. I know, it's true. But as a Warriors fan, I can't go Patriots. Same thing. Let's go uh, get Rachel. Okay. And we'll start this here podcast. Okay. Welcome, Rachel, to the Grotto Pod. Thanks for having me. You bet. You drove all the way down for this, just for this, right? (laughs) Well, I did have some other things. I got to go to the ballet gala last night. But Yay, and that's why you look so beautiful today. It is. It's complete happenstance that I'm oh, hair done. <laughs> always beautiful, but you look spectacular right now. Now, I guess to get started, so we both just blasted through the novel over the last, when did you send it to? It's a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. I read it in three days, two oh. days. Yeah, I think I read no, it in three two days. No, three days, three um, days. So I don't know if a writer wants to hear that it's a page turner. <laughs> but it is a page turner. But let, let's start a little bit with that novel because we were curious about the structure of the novel. Um, because Bridget gave me the book Save the Cat, I'm all about structure these days. Because <laughs> structure is important. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious how you structured it because it's almost picaresque. But on the other hand, you can feel rising and falling. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh well, I, I, I don't think I'll ever have another writing experience in my life like I had on this book. Oh, boy. Yeah, so I had a novel that I worked on for seven years mm-hmm. that had... Um, that was mentioned. Yeah, I said I thought you were working on a different novel, and suddenly this novel was coming out. Oh, right, Bridget had read the yeah. pages of it. It was, a, And I loved it. Oh, well, thank you. I, I mean, that's very kind of you. I think it was a mess in a lot of ways, but it was 400 pages and had this crazy structure and meta frame, and it just never quite came together, but I learned a lot. It, an extremely ambitious novel, I just want to say. <laughs> what is it, yeah. What's its status today? It's uh, in the proverbial drawer. Folder called yeah. Shelf. I, I don't think I'll ever go back to it because I've, I've learned a lot of things from writing this novel. But I have mm-hmm. to say, like, a, a lot of things that I learned in those seven years just clicked with mm-hmm. this book. So I learned that I have to write on something 
when the truth that I feel that I've glimpsed is like burningly alive and urgent for me, that that's the moment to write that project. And so, if it's not, I'm not going to do it. So then. was this novel a sprint? It was. It was eight months. I wonder if that's partly because what I was saying to Larry is I could not put it down. I read it very kind of like gulping it and turning the pages quickly kind of feeling. And at the same time, I kept thinking, how is it working? Why mm-hmm. is it feeling like this? Because it doesn't have traditional things where, I don't know, I don't know, cancer or, you know, like these big, big things where you can point to and say, oh, that's what I'm going toward. Um, but I wonder if it was the energy of your writing is what comes through. Okay, so since probably a lot of writers listen to this podcast, I'll spill some secrets. Yeah, please. You know what? Actually, before so, yeah. we do that, oh, okay. can we talk a little bit about what it's, the book's about? Oh, oh good idea. Well, oh. actually, that's one of the secrets I want to okay, spill. Okay, spill so, the secret. So one thing that really helped is um, within those seven years, I read this craft article by a novelist named Eileen Pollock called What We Talk About When We Talk About Theme. And uh, she likes to think of theme as aboutness, and it was transformational for my fiction writing process, first in short stories and then when it came to this novel. Mm -hmm. So what happened was I was really clear on what this book was about, Mm -hmm. meaning that it had this topicality objective aboutness, that it was about a couple in middle age trying to adopt a child out of the foster care system. And are they going to make it as a family? Um, And then what Eileen Pollack talks about that I find really helpful is that you have the concrete topicality, the the tangible stuff of the story. But then what really makes a story this kind of vicarious portal of experience that other people can project themselves into is you have this very clear thematic driving question, which, which is totally abstract And in my case, um, while I was writing the book, the question for me was, how can you love someone who wants to Mm self-destruct? Meaning this couple who, you know, has great intentions and uh, maybe in a lot of ways are like very empathetic. And in some ways you would think have a good chance of making a family with this little girl. But she's been through a lot. She's been through six previous foster care placements and, and some graphically nasty stuff and abuse mm-hmm. and some some really hard things that I wanted to honor as as real I wanted to make those things real and so then are they going to be able to make it so then the question is what I realized once I had finished it was how how do you make it to unconditional love and were you layering that when you say how do you love someone with self-destructive tendencies were you referring to the family's love for the daughter or the husband's love for the wife? All the way around. So the other thing that drove it was... You get some nice little parallels there. Yeah, thanks. Well, something that helped is that when I found the voice, and it was this woman whose name we never learn, Mm -hmm. speaking to the daughter and speaking to the husband. First she speaks to the husband, and then she's speaking to the daughter. And so then this was in large part inspired by Jenny Offal's Department of Speculation, where she uses brilliantly these shifts in point of view to carry off the story tension. I knew it was going to be about how do we go from from me and you and you to a true us. us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do how do we make that shift to something that holds all of us where we're not just trying to speak in different directions to each other? And is. 
No, I can't. I don't want to give away too much about it, so I won't ask that question. I want to say that I am in some ways surprised that an editor would acquire a book with you and you as two different uh, use. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that it was allowed to live the way it needed to live that way. Was there any pushback? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so another part of the process was it really helped that I knew right away that there was this beautiful containment, that it was going to start when the little girl who's seven comes to their home mm-hmm. of this couple, and that it was going to have a, uh, it was going to be very finite because it was going to end when they were either going to be able to finalize the adoption or not. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's not going to go on forever. That's going to happen in the space of a year to two years. And I actually didn't know which way that was going to go. Mm. You said that somewhere else. And so I, wow. But I knew I didn't have to yeah. know because I knew that whichever way it went, once I reached that juncture, it was still investigating the same question. So, yeah. so you let it determine, it sort of unfold on its own. Mm-hmm. You didn't know which way you were going to go. No, I I didn't. I just had to kind of ride the line of these questions and then also the tone of the book, being very true to the tone of the book. And what helped with that is that I have this nameless character who's speaking to the other two characters. Mm -hmm. And so if I ever felt like I was losing that, I just had to say, how would she really speak this to him? Or how Mm -hmm. would she really speak Mm -hmm. this to her? And that would put me back on track. But then when I started to, um, I didn't show it to that many people. So that was the other thing I learned. The first, that can be smart too, I think. Yeah, it was crucial for me, yeah. and I think that I think that most writers, when you're developing in fiction, you need to go through a period where you show things early. You get lots of feedback. You're in workshop. You're learning how to filter feedback mm-hmm. because you're you're developing. You're building up your chops. You're getting a sense of what what is my sensibility. What do I do well? But then. After a formation period, I think you have to wean yourself Mm. off of that and really get to a place where you know the kinds of artistic decisions you make. You know your sensibility. You know why you've made decisions. Like when I started to write, I would do things out of instinct but didn't know why something worked or didn't. Mm -hmm. So it's important to get to that place where you know why you've made a decision. Yeah, definitely. And so with this book... You know, I also was inspired by another um, Grotto member, a former Grotto member. He's in Seattle now, but Josh Moore, because mm-hmm. um, I had him come up and give a reading in my, my hometown up in the foothills. And he talked about writing his memoir, Sirens. And he said, I just I knew what I wanted this book to be. And I thought, you know, I have enough money to live off from teaching. I can write this book out on the staircase at midnight if I want to. I'm just going to write it and let it be. And I was like... You know what? Wow. I'm going to do that too on this book. Let it write it. Let it be what it is. That, that feels like such a place of luxury to come from. Or the opposite, <laughs> right? Such a place of artistry. Like, but to not care this, what happens to it. Yeah. No. And but the thing that's, I mean, it's kind of reassuring to think if I write it fast, if I write it in a year. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work, Just I'll move on to yeah, the next yeah. thing. What is it? Stephen <laughs> King says something like, "A book should take no more than one season," which is. Like insane first draft, um, but there is something about fast. I yeah. completely agree. Yeah. I agree. Completely yeah. agree. But I, I will say though, I did share it with a few people early on, and that was interesting to navigate because one of them had been an agent who was part of the catalyst. So I had mm. the book idea. I knew these characters and this situation, and I thought I haven't seen. A story about adoption, or specifically foster care. That was the piece. Adoption. That was the piece I had not seen before. And from this point of view, mm-hmm. I've seen books right. about foster children, 
where you're not really getting that much awareness of the foster care system per se. Mm-hmm. You're just seeing that they're being parented very badly. And, mm-hmm. and, and I thought that's so important because that is the Reality. most vulnerable person mm-hmm. here. I, absolutely the most sympathetic and vulnerable person and the person who matters the most is the child. But what if you took it from a different angle and you were able to look at the situation from the parent's point of view, it might actually shine more light. Well, and also the idea of having it be an older child being adopted. Because yeah. i got to say, as a parent, reading the first few chapters, I thought, could you imagine having an angry seven-year-old in your house and you hadn't had the first seven years to be ready for it? Right. right. To work up to that? Yeah. 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 I, I have to say that I have friends who adopted out of the foster system in California, and just everything was so familiar and... It's hard, you know, it's, and like you can have beautiful intentions and noble intentions and even have a lot of financial wherewithal. And there are things that are going to be so hard, yeah. so hard to navigate in the system itself even. Right. I mean, it's, it's a crucible for yeah. sure because you have, um, you're under the watch of a lot of social workers who, right. who need to keep an eye on you and they're doing their job and that's an important job. Right. But I do want to say like, I do hope more, pe- more people will yeah. adopt from the foster care yeah, system yeah, yeah. as yeah. hard. I mean, that's, I kind of was hoping like to, to, to honor that and show people the reality of that might make people who are trying to do it feel a little less crazy well, what I while loved, they're doing it. <laughs> what I loved is that you hold everyone in a, a lot of three-dimensionality with, of, of people are trying their best. There's not just these cardboard cutout evil bureaucrats or whatever, right? People are doing what they think is right and trying, and sometimes it's insane. That's what bureaucracy does. But, but you know, people are working toward a solution, yeah. and that's hopeful and... I don't know if you know this, but I have two adopted siblings who came from the foster system I before not. I was born. Um, so uh, I always am nervous when I start reading a book about adoption because mm-hmm. I have so often had people say really hurtful things around adoption, like you're real siblings or you're not real siblings. or And I mean, I just thought it was really beautifully handled. And um, yeah. I wonder if it was easier or harder for your parents without the massive stack of books that your characters were yeah. reading. Yeah, I think it was probably easier for my parents. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can see in the, in the novel that I have a special fondness for those parenting books. Well, and there <laughs> so is a, do all parents right there now. There is a Don't universality among parents that you read the book and you treat it like it's the Bible, and then afterwards someone tells you, oh, that book sucked. I know. Like, there's that book a, is totally there's wrong. Another, then you, you, read read, you read a different book yeah. and it's yeah. like a completely opposite. Yeah. Uh, I do think there's something to be said for... Um, instinct. <laughs> but it's hard to know what our instincts are anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mediated. Before I lose it, if I if I go back to the point about when you're letting people see your work. Oh and yeah, how yeah, much, let's, yeah, let's um it was just quite a journey because so I had the idea for it and I wanted to do it. But then the catalyst was really I was talking to an agent about a different project and she asked about this one mm-hmm. and she said, That sounds really promising. I would love to see that novel. And that gave me what I needed for just Energy, yes, totally. Because on the one hand, I was saying like, "Oh, well, you put a year into it, and you and it doesn't work out. That, how does that matter?" But on the other hand, you're a fifty-fifty breadwinner in your house, and the, mm-hmm. like, you're not sure if the mortgage is going to get paid for and that. And you're year. busy. How do you justify well, that? That's what I was right. going to say. <laughs> right, you know, right. If that year's gone, you still have so much else going on, um, as far as teaching, as far as freelancing, as far as editing, that I could see where a year of doing. I mean, I could see where a year of doing a novel wouldn't be the biggest thing. But how do you balance that time? Where do you get that time? Yeah, Especially well, if you're sprinting through a novel. Yeah. Well, so suddenly I had enough buy-in that um, 
I I made myself find the time and um, huge right and I, and I do have a, a daughter um, that I adopted out of the foster care system. Um, although this is a book of fiction, but I mean, part of the reason I did uh, the way I did it was just um, you know being at the community pool in the summer, mm-hmm. and she's in the pool, and the lifeguards are doing a great job, and she's having fun <laughs> with her friend, and I'm you know sitting over Take there on away. the bench, and I've got and I've just got my computer out whenever I can. So important. <laughs> Can't so be important. fussy about it. Right. Um, but anyway, I had this buy-in, and then I just decided to. I showed her, well, let's see, I went back to the agent, and I showed her the first 20 pages, and I got a very short response, but again, encouraging. Like, okay, So keep, the same agent? Yeah, and the same agent, and she said, all right, keep going, I'd like to see the whole thing. I was like, okay, now I'm just going to write the whole thing. I showed it to the two members of my writer's group. I have a, a group of two members um, up in Nevada City, but I only showed them the first 40 pages, just to get enough feedback on, is the voice doing what mm-hmm. I think it's doing? And then I didn't show them the rest. And then I, I did take it to Lit Camp, the conference, mm-hmm. and that was interesting because the feedback there was, gee, this point of view seems really complicated. How are you going to pull this off? Yeah. <laughs> did you and take that as a challenge or a roadblock? I took that as I was just at a point in development where I was like, I know that's the challenge I've set up for myself. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge I accept. Watch. Now I'm going to do it. Check me out. <laughs> it, it really works in the book. It yeah. really works. I was never confused. Like, wait, who's this being directed at? In fact, it was a moment where I realized, oh, my God, that like they're both being addressed at different times. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, and that was I wanted it to kind of start breaking down. Yeah. So at first we're kind of moving between them so it's easier to track. Right. Right. And then part of the emotional arc is then we get into this chapter where the mother's trying to talk to the husband, and then she's trying to talk to the daughter, and which one is she trying to talk to, mm-hmm. and how can she talk to them at both? And, that, and there's the, the breakdown in point of view there at the emotional moment for it. Um, but the funny thing was, so then I went and I just read, I wrote the whole book in a sprint, and then I was so excited to take it back to that agent, and I sent it to her, and the email comes back, Rachel, you're a beautiful writer. Oh, but <laughs> Whenever they leave with the quality of the writing rather yeah, than yeah. the story, it's not a good sign. Yeah, and I was devastated. Of course. And it was a very kind email, but it was saying... Um, it's too spare for me. I'd like to see other points of view. I'd like to see it from the child's point of view. Mm. I had a different novel in mind. If you want to try that, I'd be happy to look again. And I just heard that and I thought, I wrote what I wanted to write. I can't do what you're asking of me. Boy, I can't imagine. You're so far in that main character's head. I can't imagine pulling back out. But as a reader, I don't want to go into another consciousness like that. I like that it's in her POV the whole way. I really like that. So what happened next? Oh, well, so I was just, I mean, I was Ugh, really devastated. I get it, man. I get it. I, I cried, and, um, and then I ran into Francis Stroh from the Grotto at the Squaw Valley Community mm-hmm. of Writers, and I told her what had happened, and I, and I had sent the novel that I worked on for seven years out so much, so mm-hmm. I had gotten... So much rejection. I, I mean, a dozens, dozens. It's probably hundreds of rejections. Right. Can, can we back up for a second? Because I'm yeah. interested in something. So at this point, you had already published a memoir. Mm-hmm. How, after doing that, were you surprised to have such such trouble getting the next book published? Mm. Do you feel like you got momentum from that memoir that should have afforded you a little bit more leeway? No, because I think when I did the memoir, I wasn't really developed yet as a writer. Um there are, there are things that I 
I like about the memoir. And I, like I said, the kind of the urgency of the truth that's burning in you is that's when it's the time to write that book. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really seriously apprenticed yet, even mm-hmm. though I always wanted to be a fiction writer. And I just, through my own reading dozens of memoirs and being in a writing group, was able to pull that book off. But once it was done, I knew I had to go back to square one and that I wasn't developed as a fiction writer yet. And so when my agent who represented that book didn't want to represent me on fiction, I didn't feel snubbed or angry or anything. That's that's pretty self-aware, though, to to realize that. Just go, okay, well, I got a book published, but I'm still not a writer. I'm going to start all over again. Well, if you had read the fiction I was trying at that time, you wouldn't think it took that much self-awareness. It was pretty obvious. I think it's really common, and I think it's really common right now especially, that agents represent books and not authors. Hmm. And, oof, that's hard, man. Well, yeah, and now luckily I'm in a different situation, and I have someone who really uh, represents the authors. And And this agent came after the one who saw the first 40 pages. Yeah, so it was Francis and I said I don't I don't have the heart to send this out and get it rejected dozens of times. In part because I really believed in it. Right. And I actually had reached this great point though where I felt like the writing of it was amazing and no matter what happened that was almost enough mm-hmm. for me to have had that experience of writing it. I there was a part of me that's like I don't I don't care if it ever comes out. I don't care what happens if it does come out. That was an amazing experience, and whoever would have thought I would get to do something like that in my life. That's a great truth of being a professional writer that no one in any other profession has to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) Job well done, no money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I think I saw you, you may have just finished it or were in the middle of it, but I, I remember just the sense of you knew you had it happen like the magic was happening mm-hmm. in the moment yeah i would run into people in our small town grocery store another writer sans hall yeah there and love sans hall she runs into me in the post office line and she's like wow your your face like what's going on in your <laughs> life <laughs> today i know i kind of remember that i kind of remember that too just feeling like whoa rachel has something magical happening yeah and i'm <laughs> so great i said well i'm writing and she said i don't usually i don't usually feel like that when i'm writing yeah, I'm like well this will never happen to me again you so achieve the writer's version of runner's high <laughs> since we're talking about sans can we say that i really enjoyed her memoir oh uh, yeah flunk, start flunk flunk start flunk start, flunk start. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was really good um Okay, so then you run into Francis. Oh, and so she said, you know, well, don't give up heart. Send it, send it mm. to my agent. And he, and I said, well, you know, it's, I don't know. It's kind of a book that's on the edge of poetry. It's very spare. It's it's not a conventional novel. And and I don't know how commercial it'll be. And she said, well, he, you know, he 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 represents some people. He might really be into that. And I was like, well, okay. So I did. I sent it to him. And so then, generous of her, though. Yeah. It's putting your neck out a little bit. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah and she hadn't seen it. Right. And right. Yeah. It was very generous of her and to take up his time. But I sent it to him and um, let's see, three other agents. I was like, okay, if I'm going to send it to him, I'll mm-hmm. send it to some others. And, um, uh, Three, he and two others were interested. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yes. I heard back really fast, and it it was not the devastation I had prepared myself Correct. for a second time. Right? <laughs> How thrilling! Yeah, thanks. 
But I, I still feel that devastation is always around the corner of for course. writers. So. <laughs> for sure. Right. Well. But did, can I just, is this too much to ask? Did you go with Francis's agent? I did. Okay. Yeah, his okay. name is I, Rob McQuilkin. And he, I had the benefit of actually two agents because his um, assistant at that time is now a junior agent. And mm-hmm. she was just transitioning to that. And she was an amazing first reader who just Great. completely got it. And um, gave me some, we did some, I would say, surgical work on it. And it was very pinpointed what to do. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Rob works with a lot of poets, amazing poets. Wow. Um, that's surprising. He works with um, Kevin Young, who's the poetry mm-hmm. editor of The New Yorker, and Ada Lamone. And, wow. Uh, and he represents Annie Dillard. And so he does this blow-your-mind job on line editing. Right. Every single sentence just for musicality and rhythm. So was that a pleasure to get those edits, or was that a, like, oh, my God? It was a little, (laughs) I mean, it was was luxury, and I was just so grateful to him. And then at the same time, I was a little worried because... What if I don't want to, like, he's, he spent all this time doing these edits. What if I don't want to take them all? Right, because you were pretty close to the book. Yeah, and yeah. I and I wrote it very carefully line by line. I didn't write this book and then rewrite it. I really mm-hmm. wrote it slow but steady line by line. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going to go back and wholesale rewrite things. But they came back to me and they said, oh, well, of course, this is your work of art. You're the creator. You take the line edits you want and don't worry about the rest. And that means that it's, that means that at some level they thought this can be sold. Well, because otherwise I mean, agents they would have been, being agents, right? Yeah. Otherwise, well, I, mean, I think that's encouraging, though, because yeah. that would mean, oh, thank heavens! You know, I wrote this thing that was very near and dear to me and very personal, and it turns out it can be sold. Okay, then they take it out. I want to hear the whole story. Then they take it out. Uh-huh. And did you have to rewrite it for your editor who, who no, acquired it? No. Um, so I went with um, Helen Atzma, who's the fiction director at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Nice. And um, just clicked with her from the moment that she got on the phone with me. I knew that she understood mm-hmm. what it was about and that it was um, a different take on motherhood than she had seen before. I really liked uh, that, too. Definitely. Yeah, and the voice of it, she really understood. And she she said, I'm not going to do much to it editing-wise. Wow. Now, forgive me for being naive, but if you're in a position where a big publisher buys your book, and when they start in the editing, the edits, you reach an impasse, can you then pull out and start all over again? Um. Well, I, I fortunately didn't have to cross that bridge. Right. <laughs> I, I, I mean, there are people who have gone so far as to get back advances over that kind of mm-hmm. impasse. And honestly, with this book, I probably would have because um, th- this book, I'm actually, it's interesting for me to like start finding the tone to talk about it. Yeah, because this is very early. Yeah. It hasn't, hasn't yeah. Yet. And I think on the one hand, like we we live in this culture of like, you know, tweet out your accomplishments and be excited mm-hmm. that you got this review and be excited mm-hmm. that you're giving this reading. And I am happy and excited about it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the subject is really serious. Right. And the, the child who's at the center of this, there are 440,000 children in foster right. care right, right. now. Right. And I really want to honor the mm-hmm. seriousness of mm-hmm. the situation. So, in. so how, how do you plan on doing that? Say, um, you know, what's, what's occurring to me, I don't know if you listened to the episode we did with Kristen Kay, but she is a tree activist, I guess yeah. you would say. I, and she used her work of awesome. fiction as a launching pad 
to be. And I would say she's more activist than writer right now, which I don't think you would consider becoming. But how? What are your plans for treating the subject as more than just? a book you read in three days. Yeah, I thought about that actually today before coming in here because on the one hand, there does start to be this pressure of, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, not only should I know all the statistics about foster kids Mm -hmm. because I wrote a novel about one, but I should start having, I should start formulating ideas on what the policy should be and what the reform (laughs) should be. And then I realized, you know, at my heart, since I was 10 years old, I've been a fiction reader and writer and that's what I still am. And so I want to, honor this experience but not become an activist because what I want to do, I feel that fiction does something yes. special in the mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. that we desperately need as an alternative uh, place of consciousness right now Completely agree. in the midst of all of this news delusion, opinion delusion, right. policy fighting deluge, that, that fiction creates a space where things can be just charged and ambiguous and the reality of life is that you don't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. and you don't know how things should be and sometimes even the best policies don't play out the way that yes, you wish mm-hmm. and well, you can just be in that ch- that moment and, and you can also argue that just by writing the book you're raising awareness um i i mean i do hope that more people will um consider adopting older children mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's it's beautiful when it works. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there is that. You know, I think about someone like uh, Shanti and Lucky Boy. Uh, you know, I don't think Shanti's necessarily become an activist per se, but her book has been on a lot of reading lists where I think it's raised a lot of awareness about immigration, detainment centers, children at the border, all these things that became bigger and bigger news stories. And there is really something to be said for a story that, uh, you know, I guess humanizes, you know, complicates and humanizes a really devastating reality. Um, You can't just say, I'm against this, and people understand it the same way as living into a character. Right. Yeah, that's it. Take something that's abstract and makes it real people, real characters, real concrete specifics that you can project yourself into. Right. Yeah. So in that way, it's very activist in the world, in my opinion. Hey, let's talk about your life as a writer. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Because I've been trying to figure out a way to segue, so I just thought I'd blurt it out. Um, Reading your bio, and this is a side, uh, let's say a side of anything you wrote in your memoir. I just want to talk to you as a writer, because um, you just mentioned you became a fiction reader when you were 10. Um, you're living the, the, the hardcore life of a literary fiction writer, you know? You, you teach, <laughs> you, know, you have your own reading series, um, you go to uh, lit camp, you do all the stuff. So what is the genesis of all this? I know you're from the Central Valley. I know you had a major trauma in your life when you were 10 years old. What led you becoming to you becoming a serious fiction writer? Um, well, I mean, it started in high school uh, when I didn't even know if I would go to college. Um, wow! Yeah, I was um, just a girl in Clovis. I was just a girl in Clovis <laughs> High. Hello, Clovis High friends. <laughs> uh, my um, my many my many boyfriends at that time. Um, I mean, I was just. I hadn't reached any kind of resolution about what had happened with my father. 
mm-hmm. being murdered when I was uh, 10. And um, so I was sneaking out all of the time and getting D's and F's. And I really didn't know what my future would be. And then I spotted a uh, writing competition. Um, yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I have chills. I mean, I, I, I assume you were a reader, but were you a writer before this? Right. So I was actually um, stealing, sorry, uh, <laughs> textbooks from my school because I would take the novels from the English okay. class and take them home and read them when they weren't assigned. I think the statute of limitations is... <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. I still have some of them. <laughs> I do, too. That's so funny. I used to steal them, too. <laughs> but we do need our textbooks to stay in the school. But, yeah, uh, but yeah I was definitely reading, mm-hmm. and I just wasn't that functional in school or... I mean, I had been kind of accidentally sh- shunted off into the bonehead classes, and that had taken... Same, yeah, dude. Yeah. Exactly the same. I hated yeah. high school. It was awful. So what are your old Clovis High pals think of you now? Uh, do they expect <laughs> you to like, live in this is, world? What is of, up with you, dude? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Literature and art. And- yeah. I mean, yeah, what happened was I went into statistics, statistics class, the bonehead track, right? I wasn't doing calculus because no one thought I was going to college. And there was a flyer on the bulletin board um, oh that said, write an essay about your favorite book. And I chose Virginia Woolf's The Voyage Out, which is her first novel. Which um, is the, the most unlikely yeah. novel for a high school girl in Clovis yeah. to choose. I'm floored. She, I, I mean, I, I had just it. recently read it. Yeah. And, yeah and, and, I love it. And I wrote about why I loved it. And um, it turned out it was a statewide competition sponsored by the University of California at Santa Barbara College of Creative Studies. Mm-hmm. Know it well. And, um, and I won... And they had me come down for the prize ceremony, and they told me and my mother that um, they could waive my grade point average so that I would, because uh, I my GPA did not meet what was your, standards. What was your what, <laughs> yeah. was your what was your costume at this time? Were you all black, or what were you sporting here? Oh no, I wasn't like that at you were, all. You were I was on the, the flag team. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Okay, oh, wait, what year is this? Um, 94. 94. Oh, okay. Yeah, 90, 94. Okay. I, and, and a saber, I had, you. I was a um, Blue Devil. So Concord Blue Devils, um, world champion mm-hmm. drum corps. Cool. You got to pull the video champion. out sometime. So I toured all summer twirling a sword on a football field. and um, I loved everything about <laughs> So that was your lane at the time. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah, I, I was just, and, I, and actually that was what I thought. I thought, well, if I don't go to college, I'm going to be a flag team instructor. Hmm. I am loving every <laughs> single word that you are saying. I love it. Okay. The videos college, are but, dear to my well, heart. Well, the thing is, okay, but now even crazier because I went to UC Santa Barbara and College of Creative Studies was, was full of freaks who are all my friends. But I mean. They were all wearing black. They, <laughs> yeah, or whatever, right? But so, so what was it like to show up there fresh from the Central Valley? Oh, <laughs> well, that was kind of funny because actually I remember and I got to look at the notes they took on me at the time when they first met me and they weren't all that impressed with me when I first got there because... Yeah, because um, I brought my my beloved aunt. I'm sorry, I'm going to say this about you, my aunt, but but she but she. I remember they saw as the and the person in the room at one point said like, "Oh, and we're all so cosmopolitan." Like made a very um, a joke about that. Oh, um, oh, oh, and my aunt said, "I love that magazine." <laughs> and they were like, oh, this girl, I love this. I love so this. with all this though. And realizing what they had had to do to get you there, when you first started there, what did you think were your chances of success? Oh, I was very confident at oh. that point and because I knew I just wanted to write and mm-hmm. and and the college is set up to be 
um, it's a small college within the larger university, and you get to take any classes you want. You can take um, upper division classes while you're a freshman. Um, and then most of the classes within the college are just like 12 students. And it was a lot of sitting around a table and discussing books that the professors were passionate about and, um, and, and having, um, you know, writing workshops. And um, I just – the only thing that was frustrating was I was like ready to just be there and write and work my ass off. And there was a lot of people drinking. <laughs> I wasn't so into that. I knew all those people. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, such a game changer though. It's Unbelievable story. One essay, boom, I'm a writer. Yeah, yeah. It could change your life just like that. I love it. Yeah, I don't know what would have happened with my life otherwise. I mean, I'm a little afraid of how it might have gone for a patch there. And do you ever think about, I mean, as a fiction writer, like, oh, just one little turn. Oh, yeah. Skip class that day or whatever. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think there's things like that in the novel, too. You know, they're all trying all these different things. But um, I actually, like, one thing that was important to me is I feel like and I'm struggling because I want it to be understated. It's not like an agenda I wanted to push on the reader, but I think there are spiritual questions in the novel. Oh, 100%. Um, I think they're pretty yeah. evident. Yeah. Yeah, and one of them is you can call it chance or you can call it grace, but you're doing your best. You're doing all the things that you should do, and some of it is just something happens in that mm. moment that you can't control or plan, like... Um, um, you know, they, the, one of the scenes at the end, the, the girl Marisa, who they're adopting, is is in a, a terrible panic attack. And I mean, we're talking panic attacks. We're talking, you know, a child who mm-hmm. has been through that kind of abuse is going to not even be in the moment with you anymore. You know, literally think that the parent is maybe the abuser right. from years before. Right. There's and, a moment when one of the parents looks in her eyes and they don't see anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not there. They're back in that moment from when they were four years old and maybe you're the person who kicked her in the head. Mm-hmm. And you can't rationalize about that. Mm-hmm. And then there's this moment, though, where they had they had given her this um, stuffed bunny, which they call Mr. Fluffy. Mr. Something that really yeah. <laughs> and and, um, and um, Sebastian, the character in the novel, just happens, it happens to be there, and he grabs it and shows it to her, and she recognizes it, and it's this tangible thing right. that at this point they has been in her life and connecting her to them for a while. You know, that's just, you don't control that kind of thing happening, and then it makes a difference. I would have said, if you had said to me, you know, what is the theme of the book? I would have said grace is one of the major mm-hmm. themes of the book. That's the word I yeah. like for it. Yeah. yeah. There were details that struck me as that kind of unnerved me because um, I thought they were specific to other stories I knew. And then now that they're in your story, too, I'm like, oh, God, maybe this is a thing. Um, there was one moment where uh, there's all these melatonin tablets mm. that are... Uh, that the foster family has, and I know that's something that uh, people have been using to kind of control kids, uh, mm-hmm. melatonin, and uh, I did not know this was like a widespread thing. Yeah, that and... It's scary. It is, and... Um, and Ritalin? Well, um, no, Ritalin doesn't play, but it, um, I don't know if this plays out in the book, but from my own experience in this world... Um, cough syrup, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. to sedate children. Oh. But they give them melatonin to, and, like, make them sleep. Sure. Yeah. But it makes you hallucinate also. Does it? Yeah, it can. Wow. Yeah, it can. And, um, yeah, it's a way of, like, medicating your charges. Yeah. Sort of zombifying. But, but not needing a prescription, like Ritalin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Prescription, yeah. Huh, cough syrup. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of zombifying mm. going on in the system. Yeah. And, um, 
that's that's kind of where I go into this mode of, I mean, I do have ideas about how policies and structures should mm-hmm. change. Um, yeah. But, yeah. you know, it's funny that you say that because I feel like in the book there are times when if you asked the mother and the father if they thought zombifying a kid was a good idea, at that moment they might have said yes. Every oh. parent, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. What's it going to take? Here's an iPad. Yeah, and that yeah. was really important to me that uh, the the mother who's speaking the book you know, at first she wants to judge people. Mm-hmm. She wants to, to judge the former foster parents. Mm-hmm. Why weren't they? They must have been bad parents. Why right. weren't they there for her? Why didn't they stick by her? She wants to judge the temporary foster mom. Who, With her Durango. Yeah. <laughs> the red Durango who's taking in lots of kids and who, you know, does do things like try to zombify them. Mm-hmm. And then you reach that moment where that's the only... Only way of coping you well, think you have at your disposal, too, and you're no longer so inclined to judge. There is a reality in parenthood that says that all of us are just keeping our heads above water yeah. <laughs> at times. There's a line by Faye Weldon, the mm. uh, British novelist, and it goes something like, um, it must be wonderful to not have children because then you can still think you're a good person. <laughs> <laughs> Once you have kids, you really see your darkest Yeah. Self. Like, yeah. face to face. Yeah. You know? Like, oof. Yeah. But it also it also cultivates a lot of compassion. Like, I mean, it's trite, but I had so much compassion for my parents after kids. Like, mm-hmm. You know, they really did their best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard. Let's rejoin Rachel on her journey. Yes. So you got an MFA at Warren Wilson, or did you teach at Warren Wilson? Oh, no. So that was part of when you were asking, like, I, you know, I had the first book, which was a memoir, come out, and, you know, didn't I think I could just go forth Mm -hmm. and write the next book? Well, I I didn't. And so after about two years of realizing, like, I've really got to re-up here, Mm -hmm. um, there's a consciousness shift that's eluding me to get to what the kind of work I want to do. Um, I was in a writer's group with Natalie Bazile of the Grotto, who wrote Queen Sugar. Has been a guest on the Grotto pod. So is Josh Moore, by the way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, she would give me rides home from our writing group and ask, and she was going to Warren Wilson at the time. Oh, that's right. I forgot she went there. Yeah. Yeah. And Is that she, the non-residency program? Well, it's a low residency. So yeah. you, um, it's the first, I have to, I'm such a Warren Wilson cult member. I apologize. No, the tell us. It's my life. Great. Yeah. I know I, several people have gone there. It's, yeah. It's like my second religion. <laughs> oh my God. Preach. But, yeah. Well, um, yeah. So it, it's the first low residency program in the country. Oh. They created the structure. The idea being you, you go and you're there with everyone for 10 days, which when I first signed up, I thought like, oh, so you like you sit around and you drink a lot of wine and you write new pages and you talk about the books you love. And then I got there and it's like, holy shit. Like camp? It's like, so it's not a writing retreat. No, it's so hard. It's, it's so overwhelming and grueling and you're so out of your depth because yeah. the teachers come from programs, other programs all around the country, in part to be with each other. Yeah. As much as with the yeah, students, yeah, yeah. and they, they don't really do it to make money. We're, we're getting this recurring, you don't make I know. money mm-hmm. theme on this podcast. Right. Right. The first time it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a theme of the podcast, actually. <laughs> but so they're there to talk in part to each other, and you're just getting to overhear their conversation. So they're talking at this high level. They're not yeah. thinking about, like, graduating you in or what kind of, like, basic concepts do you need to... So you, you just, just got to be on just, task. Just get in there and swim and just, you know, know that a lot of stuff is not going to make any sense to you now. And it's all going to seem mystically crazy. And maybe a year from now, it's going to click for you. Mm. And so um, 
Natalie would give me a ride home, and since she was in that program, she would ask to listen to a recording of the lecture as she drove me home. And I heard one of those lectures, and I thought, oh, where, where can I go to get that? And so I applied specifically to Warren Wilson. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And Natalie's here today. I haven't seen her in forever. Did you know she was going to be here? I know. Oh. <laughs> it was just happenstance to turn into her today. It's God. <laughs> <laughs> it's grace. It's grace. <laughs> it is. Good. Oh. oh, wait, wait, wait. Can you say who some of your teachers were? Um, well, the one I was closest to is named um, Frederick Riken. Mm-hmm. He teaches at Emerson. Um, he has a novel that I think is genius called Day for Night. Oh, yeah. Um, he was my final semester, and um, he is genius when it comes to thinking about point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get your hands on this essay by him called The Author-Narrator-Character Merge. And then this is very applicable to me. Why, I think it's like, why first-time novelists? often create flat, uninteresting novels. <laughs> it's an essay. It's, it's an essay. It's mm-hmm. in one of their um, anthologies of um, their their collected lectures. But yeah, Rick, uh, man, Rick was amazing. And um, my first semester, I worked with a woman named Laura Hendry. Mm-hmm. And she was great because I came in there with all this journalism background and having written a memoir. And so I was thinking like, I basically know what I'm doing. Right. I'm pretty competent, and I'm just going to go deeper. And she says, no, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to break you open and put you back together again. And I thought, oh, how dare you say that to me? And, you know? and, she, and she was right. And what she dug into, you know, these things like, yeah, you're so lucky if you have a teacher who takes the risk of offending you and getting into mm. personal stuff that's beyond the page because – when you're an artist, that's what you're bringing to it. I mean, you can't just say like, oh, no, it's it's just in the work itself and it has nothing to do with who you are. So she was saying, you know, you are being so judgmental. Your stories oh, are yeah. judging you all have the characters. That, is that who that line in the acknowledgments is for? <laughs> yes. I told you that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for telling me I'm judgmental. Yeah, Laura Henry, she, she beat it into me and she was right. And, you know, judgment is a defense mechanism. And, um, yeah. Wow. I had someone tell me at a workshop um, that line by line, technically everything was fine, but I had no idea what was in my heart. And unless I knew that, I could never be a writer. And I cried for, Mm. I'm not even kidding you, I cried for like four hours for weeks after, and it changed my life. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's a intense, pretty freaking harsh thing to say to somebody. That's, mm-hmm. not, that's not something you'll get in econ class. <laughs> no. No, but it was, it was scary. Hey, you know, we're, we're running out of time, and we haven't talked about Yuba Lit yet. Oh, so I really want to make sure that we talk about that. Thank you. So before, just to give listeners an overview of what you do, it, it's two-pronged, right? You have classes and you do events. Well, it's supposed to be so. So I do events through Yuba Lit, and then I... To have a writing life outside of academia, um, I started my own school mm-hmm. in my town. So that's Yuba Writers Workshops. And now it's kind of bleeding because since I needed to put Yuba Lit on hiatus because mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, it's a lot of work to book writers to come mm-hmm. up and find the venue and rent the venue. And I can't and do it's that. A, it's tour. a major undertaking. Yeah. Like, it's, it's the real yeah. deal. Yeah. It's the real deal. Well, thanks. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Bridget was one of our most amazing Yuba that we've had. See how I felt. I mean, there were so many yeah. people. Yeah. I, and I, I, can I just digress very quickly? You said you put Yuba Lit on hold, but now you have all these people up in Grass Valley reading Chekhov together. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. So since I couldn't do these big scale events for a while while I'm on book tour, mm-hmm. um, I really just felt like 
people need to read fiction together right now mm-hmm. and fiction that opens their hearts. And as Laura had told me, she had me read a lot of Chekhov, you know, and um, that, how do you drop your judgments and what happens when you find compassion for people that your knee-jerk reaction is you shouldn't have compassion for that person. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm doing a monthly free class where so we great. come and discuss Chekhov. And wow. people come. <laughs> Do you rent space for that? Because I didn't see the sign. I was just up in Grass Valley last weekend, mm-hmm. and I didn't see the Ubalit sign. Yeah, we. Did you um, move? I well, I found this great. You know, I was just lucky. I I was up there. I teach also online for Stanford Continuing Studies, and I guess people in the community found out about that. And this one woman in particular said, "Will you offer live classes here?" And I thought, "I don't have a space," mm-hmm. but she was the catalyst for looking. And then I found this amazing building in Old Town, Grass Valley, and um, it's, you know, I think it was built in like the 1870s. That's I don't, like. I don't know what they used to do there because the wood floors are incredible. Like there was some serious heavy machinery going on. It's so gouged, <laughs> so but like cool. in the most beautiful way, and yeah. it has these stone walls. And I have a space not much bigger than this wonderful podcasting closet. But then <laughs> but then um, it comes with access to the conference room. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I have my own writing space there, which has also Ooh. been transformative. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a six-minute commute from my house. So. so that's where you go to write, too. Mm-hmm. I leave the dishes behind. The that's dishes will be there. And all the stuff in the refrigerator. I, that's the biggest <laughs> that's problem. The bad stuff. Well, I think I take half of that with me. <laughs> I sit there eating chocolate the whole time I'm trying to write. Oh, my God. But, yeah, I have my own space. I write there from 9 to noon, um, and then I have the classes. And it sounds heavenly. I have to you've, say. you've, I mean, you've plied your trade here in the big city and there in the small towns. And it was interesting. Bridget was saying earlier, you get, you get a ton of people for readings because there's less competition. <laughs> or maybe I said maybe maybe because yeah. there's less competition. Yeah. I mean, is is that the upside? I mean, what's what's the downside? Um, no grotto. Oh, oh no, I'll be I'll be completely frank and forthright. Yes, definitely no grotto. Um, I, I think we also do get a lot of people there because um, there's, it, there's this interesting pocket on the San Juan Ridge. Um, so that's where um, Gary Snyder, the mm-hmm. poet, lives, yep. and Terry Riley, famous composer. And mm-hmm. there's a kind of really interesting artistic community up mm-hmm. on the ridge. And then a lot of people attracted to that come to Nevada City Grass Valley. Oh, okay. I see. So that's part of it. But I will say, frankly, the downside is... Um, not as much diversity and cultural pluralism, just uh, because we're in a town that is much more predominantly Caucasian. And um, I was living in Oakland before I moved there, mm-hmm. and I love the pluralism of Oakland. Mm-hmm. And, and what about just uh, vibe, just creative vibe? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't. I guess I like have my room with my books, so there's my creative vibe. <laughs> you are your, your self-contained own vibe. creative vibe, <laughs> kind of, which is nice. <laughs> so, what's ahead for you as far as touring for the book? Um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to do uh, my first reading. Will be at Green Apple Green Books. Apple. The, the I guess there's a location on Sunset. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. Oh, You'll good. love it. It's yeah. way better for readings. Comment yeah. is one of my favorite I know, stores it's ever. The greatest bookstore, but this is a better space. Yeah, oh, yeah, great. It's a better space. For being an author, it's oh. so good. You're going to love it. Can't wait. And to when see is there. that? Okay. Do you know? So that's um, Tuesday, April 9th, which is the day the book publishes. Okay, so fun. And um, Vanessa Hua will come and um, interview also me. Also on the Grotto Park. I think she has to be at a reading for in order for it to. 
be yes, reading in San Francisco. <laughs> you guys, if Vanessa is not at your reading, it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I just want to have a party. Um, and I'm my place that I hang out. So I'm also a singer. And I hang out um, in Oakland at a bar called The Alley. It's a piano bar. Wow. And, um, How did we miss this? Yeah, I had. Oh, I did know this actually. Will you be, will you be lugging flags? <laughs> yeah, and I'll twirl a flag oh. and I'll throw a saber in the air for you and you'll rotate oh, seven times and I'll stop it dead and do a little dance. <laughs> um, no, but we'll sing some songs for sure at the alley on, on Thursday. What um, kind of singing do you do? Um, standards. Torch um, singer? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, Great American Songbook. That's yeah. great. You love that. I do. Love that. <laughs> I, I love it too. Who doesn't love it? I mean, but yeah, Larry likes a good. Yeah, I, song. I learned to sing at the alley, and actually, my next book, which I just finished, and um, <laughs> but I haven't sold it yet. But I, it's finished, and it, things are happening. Is about learning to sing at the alley. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> so it's nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. Next oh, one's a memoir great. again. Yeah. And then from there, are you doing a, a large tour? Yeah. I'm, I'm so grateful to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt for giving me all this support. I'm going to go to New York, Seattle, Los Angeles, my hometown of Fresno, so my Clovis Yay. High friends can come. Come and, on, Clovis peeps. We want you to show up. <laughs> yeah, and a few other places. And mm-hmm. Very cool. I mean, biggest congratulations to you. It's, yeah, that is fantastic. So fantastic. Thank you. Uh, why don't you give us a couple of websites and Twitters and stuff where people can find you and Yuba. Right? Oh, okay, great. So um, rachelhoward.com. Uh, and how was, did you get that website? Oh, oh. So, yeah, it was early. I planted that flag uh, no. early. I'm so jealous. <laughs> and I have, um, I'll give everyone my Gmail address, rachel.howard at gmail.com. Oh, wow. Oh, snag that she one. Open book, <laughs> literally. Yes, write to me. <laughs> you have just the same kind of name as Larry and I. Like, there's a few. Mm-hmm. Not super common, but there's a few. And neither he or I. We couldn't get We yeah. have nothing. Oh, and it's so funny having... A, Super common name because there's also a famous British painter named Rachel Howard. Who's and a basketball right? player. Oh, well, I didn't know about the basketball yeah. player. But the painter, yeah. I will sometimes get emails yeah. from collectors <laughs> trying to reach her or the Venice Biennale wants her to come and I'm getting her Do email. You, well, I don't, I'm not her, but my husband is an artist. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's One hand so washes good. the other, yep. I I'll tell you, there's a producer at 30 Rock who hates me because people... <laughs> I've gotten some not very nice emails, honestly. Oh, I mean, right, not, right, not right, terrible, right. but she gets annoyed. The Fox, she gets, is she a Fox News Bridget Clay? No, different. Same, same spelling as mine. Uh. <laughs> but it's a great name, so. Oh, thank you. Yes, I like it. I'm having a great exactly. name. But I'm glad that you have all of the perfect. Right. <laughs> and uh, Twitter, yeah. Instagram, all that stuff? Um, boy, Instagram, I'm, I promise I'm going to start using it, maybe. I don't even know how to use it. Isn't that terrible? But Twitter, uh, Twitter. at Rachel A. Howard. Okay. <laughs> and can people find all the Ubalit stuff through your website, or do you have your own? Uh, Ubalit.org. There you go. Snag that one, too. Good heavens. Uh, <laughs> BQ, party. what if someone wanted to find you and they weren't in Boston <gasps> this weekend where you're going to be interviewing Tab of the Sword? Oh, oh I know. Gosh. I know. So fun. Um, well, if they wanted to get a hold of me, they could find me at BridgetQuinnAuthor.com or on Twitter at BQuintrest or on Instagram the same. And if they're foolish enough to want to find me, they can go on Twitter, Instagram, at that Larry Rosen. If they can't get enough of me, and really, who can? They can listen to my other podcast at isitgoodforthejews.com. Uh, you know, we didn't do this ourselves. No, we did not. We really need to thank Beth Weingarner, Laurie Ann Doyle, and Lee Kravitz. Thanks, you guys. And hey, thank them yourself. Go on Twitter yeah. to the Grotto Pod. 
That's right. Tell Send an email to grottopod at gmail.com. Someone will get things. to it eventually. Probably yeah. me. You may have uh, already sent one. <laughs> Hopefully not, Larry. That's it. I'm spent. I got nothing else to say. How about I have you? one more thing I okay. want to say. I want to say to read, write, and just keep working. That's it.